Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9. And if you picked up a Bible off the cart, that's on page 573. And as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about Servant Sunday. At Heritage, we have a focus on worship. And we design our ministry teams and our uh, uh, programs and the different things that we do so that most of us are able to worship God most of the time. And to enable that, we created what we call Servant Sunday. And on Servant Sunday, what we do is we ask that uh, you sign up to be on a ministry support team so that you are able to worship most of the time and that those who are in worship while you are serving are able to focus on worship and not worry. Our, our motto was more worship, less worry. So what we do is we ask you to sign up for one year, uh, and in that year, you really, for some teams, it's only one Sunday a month. For some teams, it is a few Sundays uh, in a row, and then most Sundays off. So again, that you can worship most of the time. So we need you. We need you to sign up on the sign-in uh, sign uh, placards that are in the back by the doors. And we have uh, six teams. One is the music ministry here with Jonathan. Uh, one is the AV ministry, so that all this stuff is working well. One is the nursery. One is the support and uh, setup. And those are the people who do the chairs, who do the ushering, who kind of provide security and things like that. Uh, one are Sunday school teachers, and the other one is the connect desk to meet with anybody who's a guest or a visitor. So as you contemplate how you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ so that all of us can worship God most of the time, uh, think about which team you can sign up to support. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Praise be to God. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning at, for our Christmas service. It's always such a joy to be here and to celebrate together. I know many of you have family. Some of you uh, may have family visiting this morning. So if you're here as a guest, we want to welcome you. We're really glad that you're here and that you were able to come and be a part of our Christmas service this morning. So uh, before we dive into God's word this morning, let me pray. And I want to ask for God's blessing on uh, the spoken word. Let's, let's just pause and pray. Father, thank you for drawing us here to this place this morning. Thank you, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we can celebrate this um, epic, the greatest event in all of history, the coming of your son, the Lord Jesus, to earth to, 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 to be born and to be raised, to not sin, to be sinless, and to die on our behalf and to be raised in newness of life so that we can be saved. We celebrate that this morning and we pray that you would help us, that you would just, God, that you would come with your spirit and that you would free us, that you would give us liberty as, as I preach and that you would open up the hearts and minds of those who hear and pray that there would not be a single person this morning who is unaffected by the truth that they hear this morning in your word, but that they would be uh, gripped by your word. 
and that you would open up hearts and let all distractions go, Lord, in this room right now. Any distraction that would cause someone to not listen or pay attention or to to be worried or anxious about something else or be troubled, Lord, may you come and sovereignly just bring a peace and a calm and a receptivity to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Each night, about 40% of American children uh, will go to sleep in homes where their fathers do not live. And not only have we lost the presence of fathers in our society, but we've actually lost the concept of fatherhood almost altogether. We're living in a culture of fatherlessness. Does every child need a father? Does every boy or girl need a dad? Well, Peggy Drexler, who's a PhD uh, assistant professor of psychiatry and uh, psychology at Cornell University, has an opinion on this matter. She's a strong advocate for the normalization of single motherhood, keyword normalization, of single motherhood and lesbian parenting. In her new book, Raising Boys Without Men, She claims that there may be as many as 5 million lesbian mothers currently raising children. She argues that a new generation of boys is being raised by a core of what she calls, quote, maverick moms who are redefining parenthood, reshaping masculinity, and proving themselves to be superior to fathers in raising sons. The main question of her research was this, can sons prosper more through the power of mothers alone? And her conclusion was a resounding yes, arguing that these maverick moms are actually creating the next generation of exceptional children. Well, that's not what the statistics tell us. It's not even close. According to a recent study on fatherless homes conducted by Civitas, a major research group firm in the UK, They discovered that children who grow up in fatherless homes are 50% more likely to live in poverty and deprivation, 50% more likely to have trouble in school, develop physical health problems, and run away from home, 50% more likely to take drugs, drink alcohol, and smoke addictively, 25% more likely to commit crime, 50% less likely to attain necessary qualifications when they reach adulthood and thus experience unemployment. 20% more likely to be caught offending and go to jail, and 12.5% more likely to have children outside of marriage. And that's just a few. The list went on and on and on and on and on, and I just wasn't going to put all that in the sermon. Striking statistics. So I I don't know how Peggy Drexler measures success, but that doesn't sound like success to me. It sounds more like a fantasy, living in a fantasy world, The fact is, children need fathers. And when they don't have that privilege, like we have many in this room, even this morning, who are in the unfortunate situation of not having that opportunity, the next best option, and it's actually a good option, is to to help raise those children in the context of a good, strong local church where there's a good support community around them. That's why we have a ministry called Solo Moms. If you're in that category, we would love to serve you and to help take care of you and to reach the needs of of your children. So you don't need to be crushed by that. You need to realize that's your situation right now. But Jesus is bigger than that, and he can help you in the midst of that. And we want to work to see that that happens. 
Now, this need for a father is illustrated by the enormous success of the song years and years ago by Bob Carlyle called Butterfly Kisses. Anybody remember that ballad? Yeah, and in that ballad, Butterfly Kisses, it's a song that speaks of the tender love between a father and his daughter. But in reflecting upon the song's success, uh, Carlyle said this. He said, I get a lot of mail from young girls who try to tell me to try to get me to marry their moms. He goes on to say that that used to be a real chuckle for me because it's cute. But then I realized that they don't want a romance for their mom. They want the father in that song. And that just kills me. Austin Burroughs, best-selling author, writes in his new book, The Wolf at the Table, a memoir of my father. He chronicles about his time of growing up with a distant and neglectful father. As a seven-year-old child, he realized that whenever he would crawl into his father's lap, that his dad was at, would actually kind of push him away. And he writes that his father wouldn't even look at, at, the, at him in the face, but that he stared straight ahead at the television. The little boy eventually decided to start keeping a scorecard of all the times that his dad would push him away. And it almost, it came tallied up to almost 100% of the time. But hungering for his father's presence, he took one day while his father was out at work, he took one of his father's shirts and a pair of his pants in his closet and he stuffed them with towels and pillows and lathered it with his father's cologne. At night he would snuggle up against this mannequin pretending to be held and loved by his father. He writes this, he says, over time my father's scent faded from the pillows until there was nothing left of him at all. Now those of you who have experienced loving father's may not understand what I'm talking about, may not make sense. I mean, conceptually you understand it, but you don't have an experiential, you can't connect with that story. And, and if that's true, praise God that that's you. But there are others who, that this is deeply emotional and painful for them because they could come up here right now and say, that is my life. That is my story. I have lived that. They understand this all too well. The fact is, our culture... In, in our culture, we see a desperate father hunger all around us. God has put in every human heart a gnawing need to look a father in the face and say daddy to him. He's put in every human soul the need to hear the words, you are my child and in you I am well pleased. Now, I know that this is creating different emotions for different people. Maybe your father left early in life. Or maybe he wasn't there for you, but you, maybe he was there, excuse me. He was at the home, but you remember him leaving early in the morning to go to work and then coming home, plopping down on the couch, turning on the TV and tuning everything else out. Or maybe you love your dad and actually right now you have a close relationship with him or you did. But whatever the case may be, hear this, all dads, even the best dads are a very, very poor representation of Christ. No human father can fill the father hole in a human heart. A good father helps, but listen, our father hunger can only be satisfied by God himself. 
Which is one of the reasons why if you're sitting here this morning as a single mother and you're worried about your children or you're a child and you're thinking, I don't have a dad in my life, that there's hope for you because of the fact that even if you had the best dad in the world, he can't fill the hole in your heart. Only ultimately God the Father can. So if you're a young man or you're a young woman and you're looking for someone to fill that void, perhaps you're not married yet, I just want to encourage you up front by way of application that you will never, you will never, you will never find or fill that hole in your heart with a spouse, whether you're looking for a wife or a husband. You will only fill that hole in your heart with God and I encourage you, especially young, young girls, I encourage you. If you don't have a very involved father, I encourage you, I urge you, I plead with you not to turn to some dude to fill that hole in your heart because he won't. He can't. No man can bear that kind of weight. But God the Father can reach into your heart and, and fill that vacuum and void, and he must, and you must pursue him. Only in Christ will we find that perfect love that we crave so much. And so my prayer really in this sermon for us this morning is that as we think about this phrase, everlasting father, that we would find fresh hope. Isaiah 9 is a, a great text. We've been in it for the last two weeks in this Advent series. And we've been talking about, you know, all these names of Jesus. We've been talking about he's the wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. And this morning we come to the fact that he's everlasting father. And in Isaiah 9, what we see is a description of a perfect father, a real father, not a mannequin, but one that's present, involved, loving, corrective, gracious, kind, generous, faithful, forever. That's what we see. And he's kindly inviting us this morning to observe his fatherhood and to catch a glimpse of what a perfect father is like. Now, the name everlasting father is a Hebrew word. It's a compound word in Hebrew, and it's aviad. And avi means father. Ad means eternal or everlasting. It means unceasing in duration. And, and that name means two things for us. So if, you, if you're taking notes and you want kind of, what's the outline here? Where are we going? All right, here's two things. It means two things for us. First, Jesus relates to us as a father. And second, Jesus relates to us as a father forever. All right, that's where we're going this morning. First, Jesus relates to us as a father. It's one thing to be saved, but it's quite another thing to be adopted. Jim Packer says it this way. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved for and cared for by God the father is greater I've, I've often thought about it this way. Just because the judge, let's say you committed a crime, just because the judge lets you go doesn't mean he wants to spend the rest of his life with you. But, but hear this, Jesus does. Jesus not only lets you go, but he says, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. That there's a difference between being rescued by God, being saved by him, and being adopted into his family and being called his child. And so what does it mean for Jesus to relate to us like a father? Well, there's so much we could say here, but let me say four things. First, Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us life. And by that, I mean both physically and spiritually. In a sense, in that sense, Jesus is a father to us. How about physically? Let's start there. John 1, 3 says, all things were created by him, that is Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing 
was created, which means Jesus was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1, Jesus was creating the universe. Jesus spoke the world into existence and Jesus made you and you and you. Jesus created you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He's the author of life physically. John 1, 3, that includes us. Psalm 139 says, you form me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Jesus created all of us. So in that sense, he's a father. But there's a specialized sense in which he is the father only of those who are saved. He's a spiritual father to some, to others. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal, what? Life. Then Jesus comes along and these great I am statements of the Bible. And Jesus says several things. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then later he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is a father to us in that he creates life both both physically and spiritually. He is our life. All right. Secondly, he's a father to us in that he advises us. A good father counsels his children. He gives them advice. Luke 21, 15 says, Jesus says, I will give you both words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The context there, actually, the fulfillment of those words happens in Acts when the disciples were being questioned by all the scribes and high priests Caiaphas and others were questioning these disciples who were preaching. And they say, by what name do you do this? And they were, they were literally like on the docket. They had to give an answer. They had to give a response. And Jesus says these words. He says, I'll give you both words and wisdom. And Jesus gave his disciples the ability to say the right things at the right time, just when they needed it. Or how about Psalm 32, 8? I will instruct you. And teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. So he's fatherly. He gives us life. He advises us. Third, he cares for us. John 15, 9. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus cares for us like a kind and loving father. In Matthew 23, Jesus says... Remember this language? It's, it's interesting because it's very affectionate language. He says, how often I wanted to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So there's a sense of protection there. One of the aspects of a father is that he protects. A father is very protective. Jesus is protective of his own. I want to gather you. I want to put you under my wings. I want to protect you. He cares for us. And then finally... He protects us. John 17, Jesus is praying and says, Holy Father, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And then we read in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So he gives us life. He advises us. He cares for us, and he protects us. And this is what it means for Jesus to be fatherly to us. Okay? He's father to us. Now, in the second place, Jesus is a father forever. All right, And this is where I kind of want to put more of the emphasis and weight. Because it is good, it's beautiful to see the fact that Jesus is fatherly. But it is very precious to 
think about the fact that he is father, not just for a little while, or he's not capricious, or he's not sort of here today and gone tomorrow. He loves me, but he loves me not. He's he's not like that. Jesus is here forever, and he's your friend forever, and he's your father forever. The idea of a father comes forever comes from this word everlasting. When Isaiah 9, 6 refers to Jesus as everlasting father, that's a clear statement to the fact that Jesus is eternal. The child born in Bethlehem is the one who had no beginning and he's the one that will have no end. He existed before becoming a man and he will continue to exist forever. He is everlasting. Psalm 92 says, even before the mountains came into existence or you were brought in or you brought the world into being from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is everlasting father. Now, Before I go any further, I want to address a problem in this passage. All right, because people find it confusing. Has anybody else felt felt this confusing that when you read this, Jesus is called Father? All right, everlasting Father, because that seems like a kind of a conflict between God the Father and God the Son. If Jesus is the Son, why is he called the Father? I don't get it. So let me address that problem and try to help you with that. All right, because it is problematic when you read that. How do we make sense? Well, let me say several things. First, we need to say clearly at the outset that Isaiah is not confusing Jesus with the Father. The Son of God is not the Father. So we have to avoid here the heresy of what's called modalism. It's a Trinitarian theological heresy. Modalism teaches that God is a single person, a single person, who throughout biblical history has revealed himself in three different modes or forms. This is actually one of the most common theological errors uh, regarding the nature of God. Modalists deny the Trinity by teaching that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all, in fact, one person. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. What we teach, what the Bible teaches, is that God is one being, but three persons. And so modalism is teaching that God is one person, and that's an error. When Isaiah 9, 6 says that Jesus will be called everlasting father, it's not saying that Jesus is the father, but hear this, it's saying that he's father-like. Second, by using the term father, God is attributing fatherly characteristics to Jesus. The word father obviously designates a quality that reflects how Jesus shepherds his people. He acts toward them like a father. The word father is meant to carry with it tenderness and comfort. He is a father to us forever. Third, by referring to Jesus as father, he's saying that Jesus has spiritual children. He's the father of a nation of people who love God and serve him. And we see this taught in just one chapter over in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 18. And then also in the great prophetic passage, Isaiah 53, we also see Jesus referring to his spiritual seed, his spiritual offspring. So we see that taught. That means that you and I are the offspring of the Messiah, of the chosen one, of Jesus Christ. We are children of him. Isn't it astonishing the way that the Lord Jesus is described here? I love it. What is it saying? It's saying that you and I, our greatest need is to be adopted into God's family. It's a marvelous picture of the fathering grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we are brought into the family of God. The everlasting father has brought us into his family. 
And we are to reflect this morning on the fact that we have been adopted by him, saved by him, ushered into his family. So that's what it means. The last thing is, finally, is by using the word father to refer to Jesus, Isaiah is saying something about being made like him. This, this thought really hit me as I was studying this week. It's a beautiful thing to think about. Consider the analogy of a father and son, right? What's the phrase we use? Like father, like son. There is something about that. It, kids take on the behavior even of their dad. That's why it's a bad, bad deal to be sort of a bad example in the home because your kids, whether you like it or not, are going to emulate that behavior. Sometimes I hear Judah saying things in the house. I'm like, where did he get? I hope he didn't get that from me. <laughs> And I wonder, does he get that at school or where, you know, and you, you think, man, I mean, he's listening. He's paying attention. He'll sometimes bring up conversations that, uh, you know, I'm having with Tina and I'm like, with great detail. Thinking, man, I, I'm, I need to zip my lips around this guy. But the reality is children and sons and daughters will take on the characteristics of their father. So. Like that, in the same way, we're becoming like Christ. He's forming us as sons to look like him. He's fathering us after his own heart. So those four things should help us understand why it's very fitting to call Jesus Father. All right, now, back to the main point here. We're talking about how Jesus is a father to us forever. All right, this isn't a temporary deal. So let me take you to a couple places in Scripture and show you the significance of this word everlasting. There's two things that I want to say here about this word forever, his forever relationship with us. Okay, two things. Number one, his love is forever. We're talking about a forever relationship with us. Jesus' love for us is forever. Turn with me to Psalm 103. We're gonna, just going to spend a little bit of time here, uh, sort of the remainder of our time in Psalm 103. I, I, I want to do some work here because the whole text is excellent in helping us understand this. Psalm 103, and we're going to read several verses here together. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from, what's the phrase? Everlasting to everlasting. Same word that's used here in Isaiah on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children. Now notice in verse 8, it says that he abounds in love. I love the richness of that word. The idea is he's overflowing with love. There's so much love in God that it's pouring out. It's overflowing. The dam has been broken and it's gushing out. God is love, the New Testament says. And, and And this is what's amazing about that. When you know what you really deserve. Stop and think about this for a second. You know what you deserve. And when you know what you really deserve from God, but then you realize that you will not receive what you deserve because of what Christ has done for you, you begin to see the greatness of his love. So verse 7 says, so great is his love. And then in verse 17, we see from everlasting to everlasting, which means his love is forever. This is his covenant love. This is his family love. This is what brings us in. People will tell you how they felt when they first experienced the love of God breaking into their life. I love to hear stories like that. I love to read testimonies. I read one this week of a girl 
who was describing what it was like when the love of God broke into her life. Here's what she said. She said, I felt loved for the first time in my life everlastingly. Beautiful. I felt loved. I'm betting that there are some people here this morning who have never really felt loved by their father. But I bet you this too. Those, some of those same people will come up here and say, but I feel loved by my heavenly father. Others of you say, I don't get that. I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds good. And I want to be a part of that. That's part of what we're doing this morning is we want to invite you into the love of that father. This is his covenant love. You see, the gospel tells us how we can come home. The Lord Jesus Christ tasted the depth of alienation from God. In the last days of his life, Jesus speaks about the soul distress, the loneliness, the disturbance of his whole being, the homesickness that he experienced in order that through that homesickness, we might be able to come home and not be homesick, but have our father hunger met by God himself. So for those of you who did not or do not have a loving family situation, you are introduced here this morning to a love that seeks you out, a love that woos you, a love that draws you in. It's the shepherd who looks high and low until he finds the lost sheep. It's the father who goes to the far country and says, son, son, where are you? And he's looking high and low for his son. And when he finds him, he runs toward him. It's, it's, it's the situation, it's the story of the lost coin. It's the story of the gospel that God and I, that God has, he has chosen to, to, to pursue me. And even though I have made him an enemy, he has come after me nonetheless. That the God that I have shown zero interest for, that I have stuck my fist in his face, comes after me, not with a punch, not with a kick, not with a body slam, but he comes after me with his kindness. And that kindness of God is what flattens me. That kindness of God is what leads me to repentance. See, God is not a bully, a cosmic bully in heaven. He's like, you better trust me. God is like, I love you and I gave my son. I crushed my son for you. And that love, when you begin to understand that, flattens you and will draw you in. The sweetness of that love. God not only loved us that way when we were first saved, but he loves us that way now. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is why I have continued to be faithful to you. What Jeremiah says here, here we see the ongoing love of God that his love hear this will never quit on you. His love is patient. I am grateful today for the patience of God. Anybody else grateful for the patience of God? This is an attribute that we don't talk about enough. He's long suffering. I'm grateful for the truth that I can't wear God out. That he doesn't need a good nap in order to to sort of figure out how he's going to deal with our sin. That he's always ready, he's always at any time, he's slow to anger, that his patience is great, that his love endures forever, that his mercy is extravagant, that his grace is boundless. I'm happy about that today. You see, because this frees us up when we understand this, because when you understand that you don't actually have the capacity to wear God out, It keeps you and I from walking on eggshells, from sort of stepping around gingerly, afraid that, you know, concerned that if I have one more misstep here, 
that God might, that might just be it. God will be finished with me. And, and, and God will, this will be the straw that finally breaks the camel's back and that he'll put me on the shelf or that he will no longer use me because I did this or I said that or that one sin keeps cropping up over and over again. See, what we need to do is stop and reflect on the patience of God towards us. And as we consider the subject of holiness and the pursuit of holiness, which we should, which is very important, we need to remember, though, that God's patience is on our side and that we can't wear God out. You cannot. God, it's impossible to wear out an infinitely patient God. You cannot. See, the enemy wants us to be shackled by fear and insecurity. He wants us to think that God is done with me, that he's had enough of me. And and he wants to imprison us with that fear and that guilt or that sense of failure so that we never get around to what John 10.10 says when Jesus says, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. You cannot live life to the fullest when you are in a prison of your own guilt and fear. Now, there is a place for appropriate biblical guilt. But listen, we are not to stay there. We are to go to the gospel, find comfort through the gospel, and remember that God is patient. And if he was patient when he saved you, he'll be patient tomorrow and the next day and the next day and all throughout that day, every moment of that day. We need to reflect on the patience of God towards us. And so we must stop and consider the patience of God. Knowing and grasping and appreciating the patience of God can set you free. It's amazing. This is one of the characteristics of God that I'm, I'm convinced is least talked about. Most of the time when we talk about God, we consider his power. We consider the fact that in the Old Testament, he was powerful enough to to part the Red Sea, that he was powerful enough to cause the walls of Jericho to fall down as we've just talked about in our recent faith series. And in the New Testament, that he's powerful enough to raise Lazarus from the dead, that he can look at a dead person and say, stand up. Or he can look at a paralytic and say, walk. And we consider these things. But I want you to think about the flip side of God's power. That God's power is not only seen in what he releases, God's power is also seen in what he restrains himself from. He restrains himself from giving us what we rightfully deserve. God's power is not only seen in what he does, sometimes God's power is seen in what he chooses not to do. When we think about it in a human sense, it's an aspect that most of us struggle with. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Uh, impatience is my tendency. Impatience is, is something that I am prone to. When there's a problem that arises, my tendency is to come up with a solution in the first five minutes. It may not be a good solution, but I don't want to wait 24, 48, 72 hours to figure out an answer to this thing. And so my tendency is let's get it now. Let's go for it now. Let's fix it now. You can see I'm sure Tina appreciates that. (laughs) But the point of this is, is that we are all prone to such impatience. Are you? Are there others in here that feel their, their tendency towards impatience? I trust that there are others. And because patience is an aspect most of us need to grow in, we assume We assume wrongly that God is like us. 
See, we assume, we think that because we're unsteady in our level of patience, that God must be as well. We, we would never say this, but we treat God as if he has to grow more in his patience in order to be able to handle our sin and our failure. But God doesn't have to grow in his level of patience. He's completely patient 100% of the time. The essence of all that patience was intended to be, Jesus already is. In fact, when you think about it, all the links in the chain that, oh, you know, think about the attributes of God, they're so precious. All the links in that chain, the, the sovereignty of God, his mercy, his justice, his goodness, his wisdom, I think in one sense, you could argue this way, patience is really the most central and fundamental because his patience is what enables him to love us like he does. It's most central because if it were not for the patience of God, we would not even exist long enough to get to the mercy and the grace of God. You see, God does not have knee-jerk reactions born out of frustration like a three-year-old toddler in my house, who asks the same question over and over and over again or repeats the same thing over and over and over and over again. God does not have a knee-jerk reaction out of frustration to that. And it's because our God is patient that we get to experience all that he is, including his mercy and his grace and his wisdom and his goodness and his kindness because he's patient. I love how one scholar put it. He put it this way. He says, in his patience... He said, it is his patience, excuse me, that held our sinful hands and led us to the doorstep of his mercy so that we might enter in. It's his patience that did that. His patience rolls out the red carpet for us to experience him fully. I'm grateful for the patience of God. His patience is what enables us to love him like he does. All right, so his love is forever. We're talking about how he is everlasting father. His relation to us, he's a father to us and he's a father forever. What does that mean? His love is forever. And then lastly, his forgiveness and salvation is forever. Psalm 103 tells us, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Verse three uh, says, forgive, bless the Lord because he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, it's not like God just overlooks sin. He, he does not. He's not a divine Santa Claus who says, you know, I know you've been naughty, but I'm still gonna put some gifts under the tree for you this Christmas. No, God cannot and he will not just overlook sin. And that's the problem for each of us. That's why sin is such a disastrous thing. Sin alienates us from God. It's one of the saddest moments, I think, in Scripture when you have this picture of Adam and Eve walking in the garden and, and, and it says that God came in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve. And what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding from God. That moment should be like a thousand fingernails on a blackboard to you. That... Man is hiding from his God. Our identity as image bearers is to connect to God. Everything we do and say is meant to be connected to the love and worship of God. We were made from, for God. And so to see man hiding from God in fear of him proves that something horrible has taken place. 
The result of sin is mass confusion. Think about our culture right now. Mass conflict and brokenness. We had two cops killed yesterday, shot and murdered because of an eye for an eye principle. Our culture is so messed up. And the reality is Christ is the only solution for our God-sized problem. The reason that he does not treat us the way our sins deserve, though, is because his son died in the place of sinners. This child in Isaiah 9 becomes a man. He bears our sin. He takes our punishment. Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we are healed. His love is forever. His forgiveness is forever. Jesus has a forever relationship with us. He is father to us and he is father forever. And that's what it means for him to be everlasting father. This is what hope is all about. Christmas season, we're talking about Jesus. This is what hope is about. Hope is not some dreamy wish that something good will happen to me, maybe, hopefully. That's not what hope is. No, for the Christian, hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Christ came and his payment for sin was perfect and final. And therefore, in Christ, we stand forgiven forever today. If you're forgiven this morning, you're forgiven forever, forever, forever. Say that in your head, forever. You're, you're saved, you're forgiven forever. So let me close by bringing this verse back into sharp focus. Remember that the name Everlasting Father here is a name for a child. A child will be born. A son will be given. We're talking about a child here. A child that was born to save us from our sin. Jesus is the image of God. And when you think about that, we learn about the fatherhood of God through Jesus. What does Hebrews 1.3 say? It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says something similar. It says he's the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, here's what happens. We get a clear and perfect image of what the Father is like. Jesus is everything God the Father wants you to know about him. So let me ask you these questions in closing. Jesus said in John, one other thing, Jesus said in John 10, 30, remember when he said, I and the father are one, John 14, nine, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The father. So let me end with these questions. All right. Was Jesus Christ truthful? Yes. Then your heavenly father is truthful. Was Jesus Christ compassionate? Then your father is compassionate. Was Jesus Christ merciful? then your Father in heaven is merciful. Was Jesus Christ kind and patient? Yes, then so is your Father in heaven. Everyone longs, back where I started this morning, coming full circle, everyone longs for an experience with a Father. It's something that adds stability and happiness to life. Here's the the point. Father hunger is universal, but Father absence is epidemic. And so whatever your experience of an earthly father has been, when you hear this phrase, everlasting father, you can take fresh hope. The Christmas story is a story of perfect fatherhood breaking into mankind. Some of you may say, well, Jonathan, yeah, but you don't understand. My dad never really loved me. My dad was never there for me. Well, that may be true. But listen, you have a father in heaven who loves you. You have a father in heaven who is there for you. You you say, yeah, but, but my dad, was, but he, was, he was there, but he, you know, he never really paid any attention to me. But listen, the Bible says, show me the wonders of your great love and keep me as the apple of your eye. 
He is looking for you. He's paying attention to you. He cares about you. He's father to us and he's father forever. He's everlasting father. And if you want to know that love this morning, trust in Christ. But hear me. If you spurn that love, if you reject that love, there is no other love in the entire universe that will be able to fill the gaping hole of your heart. Augustine was right. He said, you have formed us for yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Jesus is glorious. And since he is glorious, you don't have to fear others. He's everything for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the way that it corrects us and the way that it helps us. We thank you that you are our father and that you have come mercifully to redeem us. We pray that that closeness that you have, that relationship that we have with you, that we enjoy would be felt powerfully by you in, in, in this Christmas season and that we would rejoice in your fathering of us and that we would feel the closeness of your affection. If there's anyone here who does not know you as father, that they would turn to you this morning, that you would draw them through your spirit to yourself and that they would experience real love for the first time in their life. They say, my, my dad wasn't around for me. He never loved me, but they would feel for the first time real love. Would you come, would that be their Christmas gift this year, Lord? Would you do that? Would you open some hearts right now? In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Megan, and this is my story. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up going to church. I did Awanas. I was involved in a youth group. I volunteered as much as possible. Um, when I got a little older, I was a summer camp counselor. People saw me as a giver, um, as someone who kind of had it all together. Um, and I started to get affirmation from that, from being um, the girl who had it all together. And I saw that I had this family history of people who loved Jesus and who were willing to sacrifice for others. And I wanted to be like that. And unfortunately, I discovered that I also have this long family history of anxiety and depression. But I never thought that that was going to affect me because I, I mean, I was doing pretty good. I had it all together. Um, I was a good church-going girl. Last year, I moved out of my parents' house. I was working full-time. I was still trying to maintain this image of uh, being really involved. And my body and mind kind of decided that that wasn't going to work anymore. Um, but I ignored that, and I just kept going because I had to keep this up. All of a sudden, I found myself having panic attacks on the way to work or in meetings at work or on the way home or during the day. Um, and I... And I didn't know what to do with that because it didn't, it didn't fit with my image. And I didn't want people to think that I was crazy. And I was afraid that my community was going to label me as crazy, ask me to not be involved in community until I got myself figured out. So I would 
I would have these panic attacks. I'd be crying at work, and I'd come home, and I'd tell my roomie that I was feeling kind of anxious, and I might go see a counselor. And she'd be like, oh, okay, but I didn't want her to see the depth of my mess. It didn't work very long. I found myself out with coworkers wishing that a car would hit me. And through that, the Holy Spirit really was able to say, I have more for you than this. Like something in this equation is going to have to change. I was able to make it outside and, and call my boyfriend and say, listen, this is going to sound absolutely nuts, but this is where I'm at right now and I, need, I just need help. I just can't do this anymore. Um, and within 10 minutes, I had my, my family around me um, taking me home um, to my parents' house an hour north in the middle of the night after packing me up and taking care of all of my tasks um, and like loving me even though I was so messy. That kind of was what allowed me to see that it's not about me, um, that God is concerned with, with His glory and that Jesus entered into our mess to make God glorious. If I'm so concerned with my own with my own image in front of other people, that I'm never going to experience the freedom freedom that Jesus purchased for me on the cross by entering into my mess. I'm not saying I have it all together by any means, um, but I'm experiencing more and more freedom every day as I um, accept that I'm messy and that I'm I'm never going to be perfect, and that when I'm able to be weak that he's made to look really good. Amen. Love those testimonies. They're so encouraging. Um, last word, if you're a guest with us this morning, there's a little connect card here. Love for you to fill that out. It's an opportunity for us to tell you more about who we are, for us to get to know you. Um, if you'll take a moment, just fill that out. Uh, it's very simple. You can just drop it in a little plate on your way out or drop it at the desk where there's coffee. Uh, that's the second thing. We'd love for you to just hang out today for a few minutes, grab some coffee and cookies on your way out, and uh, enjoy that time. And one more thing. There are half-price books today over there in our book nook. Everything is half-price. So take take some books. Grab some. Here's John Piper's book, um, Biography of... John Newton, Charles Simeon, William Wilberforce. This is a great little book here. I mean, this book's half price, five bucks. So grab, grab some books on the way out. We would love for you to do that. Uh, let me give you a closing word from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have an awesome Christmas. God bless you guys.